What's going on, everybody? We have an awesome episode today. We are really, really excited to bring back Francisco Buhanda for his second portion of the interview. We actually were able to have Dorian in on the interview as well. So that is going to be an awesome one, one that I am very excited about and very, very happy to be a part of again. But before we get into that, we are going to talk about some of our awesome partners that we here have at ATP. First being FNX Fitness. If you guys are listeners to this show, if you've long been listeners, you've heard of FNX Fitness now, what their goal is to provide apparel and supplementation for any athlete that is looking to rise up. What that means is we're talking about protein supplements like Restore, that is going to help build muscle, rebalance with a green blend that is going to help optimize your health and revive for testosterone support. If you guys are looking to get a little bit more on that health train, especially now that you're going back into the gym, I know that some areas in the country are opening up gyms, Seattle, Washington, hopefully soon, we'll find out. But once you get back into that gym, you guys are going to need some of those supplements to help make sure that you are getting on track when it comes to your own health. Look no further than Phoenix or FNX Fitness. So if you decide that any of those products that you're looking for, you're like, oh man, I really like this. I really want to try Restore. Remember, use promo code ATPODCAST for 15% of all products on the web store. We're talking all of their products, merchandise, everything on their store. Promo code ATPODCAST. Secondly, we're going to jump into Prevolve. Prevolve is a Seattle-based technology startup whose mission is to empower the human body. Using 3D foot scanning and 3D printing, they make custom fit footwear designed for your feet. You can finally get a pair of shoes that fit perfectly. Visit the website at www.pre-volve.com. There you can schedule a foot scan, learn more about the story of Prevolve, and even download 3D shoe models if you'd like to 3D print them for yourself. All right, everybody. It is a pleasure to be welcoming Francisco back onto the show. As I had mentioned last episode, last Sunday's episode, he is back on to speak a little bit more in depth on some of the subjects that we had before. But even better than that, we actually have Dorian here for the second part of this interview. And it's a pleasure to have Dorian here to be a part of this. I think that's going to be really awesome to have him here as well. I know he has a decent amount of questions that he wants to ask as well, based on some of the conversations that Francisco and I had last time. First and foremost, though, Francisco, how are you doing? I know you said that you've been uh, relatively busy recently, but how are you feeling in general? Overall, feeling pretty well. I'm excited to be back. I appreciate the opportunity to kind of continue the conversation. Yeah, man. It's really, sincerely, we're grateful to have you on. You were, I believe, one of our best interviews that we've ever conducted. I said this to Dorian multiple times, and I was just very, very excited to have you back on for a second time around. Um, so with that said, Dorian, I know that you had a question from the last conversation for Francisco. Yeah. Um, once again, Francisco, thank you again for joining us. Um, listening last week, it was super insightful. Uh, I feel like I, I personally took a lot out of it and it, it changed a couple of my views there. One of the thing you guys kind of touched on it and, and circled around a little bit, um, 
you know, you, you talked about this ideal man, this, you know, strong, silent, um, very, you know, logical driven. I think you even use the term human doing versus human being. Yeah. Um, and while I was, while I was thinking of that, I, it kind of made me realize that that exact type of person that you guys were describing in a lot of corporate settings, that's kind of your ideal employee. And that's the type of employee that is getting promotions, that's moving forward. Um, that's, that's a pretty ideal employee from a lot of standpoints. So I, I just thought it was really interesting to, to take a look at, at that avenue, how that's kind of reinforced throughout corporate America and how you kind of deal with that challenge with, you know, opening up yourself emotionally, um, but still kind of being able to achieve success. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question, um, you know, and I'm going to take, you know, a, a different approach to it. I think it, if we approach it in the terms of, you know, what kind of personality do you have? It also allows us to engage how we come into the corporate world a bit differently. And so, you know, I'm going to fall back on the work of Gretchen Rubin. Um, she um, you know, did some research, a um, book that's well known, The Happiness Project, which eventually like the research took her into the idea around expectations. So internal expectations versus external expectations. And she wrote two other books, one of which really outlines, you know, it's called The Four Tendencies. It outlines these different ways of viewing the human person specifically as it relates to how they respond to those internal or external expectations, right? And I think this is really relevant for the workplace. And, you know, part of it is understanding that the majority, one of the things she finds in the study is that the majority of people either adhere to internal expectations, right? Which is the questioner and they reject external, right? They question other people or they are obligers. So they adhere to external expectations, but they don't necessarily adhere to internal expectations, right? Those are our friends who they'll go to the gym if we go to the gym, but the second we stop going to the gym, they stop, you know? So they're really motivated by outside factors. So the majority of, um, you know, society is made up of these quote unquote doers, right? And so when we understand ourselves in the context of feeling really motivated by those internal or external uh, expectations that people have, then we also understand, you know, how we can really be successful in the context of not just career, but in our relationship and in other dynamics, right? And we don't necessarily have to pathologize um, or make wrong our particular approach. Uh, we just have to understand it within that particular context. Now, those are just two types. There are two other types called the upholder and the rebel. The upholder upholds any type of expectation. So either external or internal, right? And then you have the rebel, which adheres to neither, right? Those are like the eternal artists. Those are the creatives. They always think outside the box. And so you always want an upholder and a rebel on your team, at least one, right? You don't want the whole thing made up of um, those folks, because you might not necessarily get the same type of uh, work done. You need people who are going to be able to push projects forward. They, they shine that way, right? And, and so in the corporate world, they know kind of how they're going to work within the ranks and how they're also going to seek to advance their own career. But for those people who are upholders and uh, rebels, it's going to be really different, right? And that's going to allow them in knowing that bit of truth 
to engage it differently. And I think as it relates to men, uh, you know, we're always a little bit convoluted in how we need to uphold, but there's also a rebellious side that we don't quite know how to adhere to. And we, we have to always kind of fit in between the lines. And so there are all these flying archetypes that tell us how to be as a man. And I think, in a, especially in a corporate world, but it's more along the lines of, you know, instead of living into the expectation, live into the reality of where you feel most comfortable and where you feel most motivated, right? And I think there are a whole slew in her book. She describes ways that you, you know, uh, different strategies, as she would name it, that you can take in, in an approach to really leverage the strengths of each of those different characteristics. And so it's really about understanding ourselves, right? The most successful people are people that have leveraged the things that they're passionate about, the values that they have. And I think that's actually one of the biggest things that men don't necessarily have right now. They don't have these, you know, archetypes like we talked about last time, these mentors um, that can help them in identifying these are my values these are the core things that matter to me and i'm going to live from this place instead we're kind of swept away by the mainstream values that are espoused um whether positive or negative we have other people defining those things for us so i think how i would relate to your question has more to do with understanding the context right that we ourselves uh, find ourselves in in regards to our own personality Interesting. I, I have a follow-up question to that as well is because of a lack of mentors based on what we had talked about previously with the workplace included, do you think that is why creations like, for instance, Gallup's uh, survey where they have strength finder, right? Mm -hmm. um, where they create essentially certain personas that you may find in the workplace and speak very systematically about how to integrate those people into your team based on the type of person you are. Um, I don't know about you guys, but for myself, I actually had to go through a survey to, you know, put myself in a box of who I am in the workplace. And we use that to integrate, okay, this is what team you're going to work with the best. Is that something that was created because of the lack of mentorship or just because corporate America became so expansive? I think that's a really good question. I actually don't know the answer where those things came about. I mean, even Jung studied, you know, the relationship between personality, right? In that, in this context of archetype. And so I would definitely say that there's a difference between pigeonholing ourselves, like you're saying, right? Or being mm -hmm. pigeonholed, right? By mainstream yeah. society versus identifying you know, what are our strengths in a way that seems cohesive? You know, a lot of these different, like Myers-Briggs, for instance, or the mm -hmm. Strengths Finder. I had to do the Strengths Finder when I first started my professional career, you know, um, like 12, 13 years ago. And um, the thing about Myers-Briggs is it's been debunked on a, you know, scientific level because research, you know, really shines a light on the fact that it doesn't do um, the client the type of work that it should be doing in regards to the consistency and providing an understanding of self, at least in a, in a coherent way. Um, so scientifically it's been debunked. And so the question becomes, what do we use it for? I think it'd be, it's a useful way to identify how you see yourself, right? Mm -hmm. One. Number two, I think it's also really helpful in a context where, you know, you can 
help other people to help under to get them to understand you. But I also think there's a lot missing. You can change what you are every time you take the test, you know? And so something about the Myers-Briggs and other folks is that you'll be able to all of a sudden, you know, this year you'll be this type of person, but you know, five years from now that might change because you're always altering and always, you know, growing, which is a fine idea, but there's still a sense of who is core self, right? What, where do you always come back home to? And I'm a strong believer of the fact that we have aspects of our personality that are pretty inherent to who we are, right? Um, it's as much nature as it is nurture, right? Um, and so we have to be really mindful of those different pieces. And there are different things that I feel like are, are rather helpful for getting there. And there needs to be more research done to get, whether it's Myers-Briggs or some of these other you know, tests to get us to a place where we can really scientifically recommend them. But um, even if they're not scientifically recommended, I still think that they serve a purpose and they can be helpful in shining a light into the person that we are and helping us ask critical questions, particularly if the, ma the, the way the personality tests are structured, right? Mm -hmm. Have an interconnected model. Right. And there are a couple of different ones out there that do do that. Um, some which have some backing scientifically, um, others that have a little bit more loose form. One of which I think that my favorite that you, I usually use with clients is the Enneagram. And there isn't a, a ton of research out there for the Enneagram, but there is a lot to be said about how it links various types of ideas and the way that we view the world and our own disposition to it. Right. And so there's a lot of therapeutic work that you can do using that archetypal model. Again, the goal is, you know, having different models in front of you to really help unpack some of the things that you felt most of your life, but never had words to put to. So I do want to transition this a little bit with recent events in mind and keeping in mind what we were just discussing is with things like that in the workplace in mind with Myers-Briggs, with the Enneagram, all of those things, does it take into an account how people of color see themselves as opposed to white America? Like that's a question that I would have is because I, I honestly would imagine that a lot of these type of tests and who you're supposed to be in the workplace is probably based on what we discussed previously as well as like any type of puritanical like calvinistic idea of of white america or what you should be mm -hmm. um and i think that like in my mind that means that it, it would probably be very tough and dorian you might be able to attest to this as well it may be tough for people who don't identify in those same respects consistently to come in and look at that so at least for me personally um you know it's it's funny that we we talked about those tests because now, as a manager, we pretty much anybody that we hire, we make go and take those tests um, mm -hmm. before we even get to screen them for an interview. So we see those all the time. Um, in terms of in terms of those types of tests um, that are kind of defining your your characteristics, um, I personally don't see um, anything about um, you know ethnicity or or kind of background come into play there. Uh, I think a lot of that you're, you know, to Francisco's point, it's, it's kind of your reflection of how you see yourself. Mm. Um, 
And so, you know, I think maybe somebody who's maybe a little bit less confidence in their role or in their company um, due to that might, you know, might go in and identify a little bit differently. Um, but I personally don't think that those tests have any, any, at least for me, personal reflection on, on that aspect of life. I, I, I personally just see them as a, as a way of a learning, really. This is how I need to communicate with this person based on the feedback that they're providing. Yeah, I definitely think that uh, I'm, I'm in agreement. Um, there's a lot to be said about the fact that, you know, I think I even want you to restate the question because there was more there too that to answer and to unpack. Yeah. And so I guess, I guess my question there is for people who may not identify with what we may consider like your standard exemplar corporate America. Right. Um, I find that it may be challenging to be able to say, Hey, this is how you are supposed to be um, black and white in the workspace. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess this could go into multiple different groups. Um, I'm not really positive if I could just clarify one, but I was just curious more or less about like how you guys viewed that personally, as opposed to, myself. And the reason why I wanted you to restate is because I think there's a lot also to unpack there as it relates to, you know, nature versus nurture. Mm. Right. And it's something that we kind of touched upon in your previous question, but this sense of, you know, we're born with innate personalities. Now, are we talking about that race is kind of um, a man-made thing? Right. In a particular context, right. I hate saying it that way because I feel like that's such a, a very, um, it's a very racist view and, and thing that is often said to denote, right? Anti-racism work is like, well, it's, it's a um, human construction. The reality is though, is that, you know, we have set it up to a certain degree. It is a human construction, you know, like it's not something that has been placed upon from birth. That is to say that we're not born with these particular attributes, judgments, and biases on these people. Those things are learned, right? They're taught systematically. um, And we're kind of like pigeonholed really into seeing it in a particular way. And so I I think the same relates to personality, right? It's like we're not acknowledging, especially when it comes to men, we're not acknowledging the diversity that there is of men, regardless of cultural background. That is like a rich, right? cauldron, if you will, of, you know, different things that we can take from to understand from to grow from. Um, We haven't even gotten into personality. But what we often do is we try to make everything the same, right. And, you know, to an earlier point in our conversation, it really denotes how people feel more comfortable in a context of order. And when there's too much diversity that they can't handle or understand, then it becomes overwhelming. But the reality is, is I think that we are consistently fed into a very basic way of looking at our lives when we're really actually incredibly complex beings, right? And, you know, whether it's being mono-minded, which we've already understood, um, and many, you know, indigenous populations and, and um, communities have understood long before us that there is a huge complexity in what it means to be human. And so when it comes to personality and how we judge people, I think, yeah, it d- doesn't necessarily include race when you're talking about a finder because 
I mean, it doesn't include it because it's not saying, well, this particular value I learned because I have to code switch or I have to, you know, live into this particular value because, you know, white America requires me to be, to fit into this colonialist, pure, uh, you know, Calvinistic, um, patriarchal, capitalistic view, right, of who mm -hmm. I'm supposed to be. Um, we don't say that, right? We don't, or we don't necessarily outline that. And so is there a way to do that? I don't know, but I think that's part of the question that I opened up with where we have to start identifying for ourselves what our values are mm -hmm. as opposed to having someone else do that for us. And so understanding the systems at play that demand of us to work on particular, you know, language skills. I mean, I don't know how many times I was told like your language skills um, are poor Francisco as a, Latin American, like whether it's how you handle your verbiage or, you know, your vocabulary or your sentence structure or this, that, and the other. And so what do I do? I learned the heck out of it. And now I just have people, well, you speak really good English, which is in itself, you know, a racist statement um, when they realize that I also speak Spanish fluently and clinically. And I think that's something that I have gained an ability to, you know, speak in a particular way. And, and it might be a gift, but it's also something I worked really hard at because, you know, I had a lot of white folks telling me that I wasn't measuring up to their standards, you know, mm -hmm. um, which is a pretty common theme within, you know, BIPOC communities. Absolutely. Dorian, you have any question? No, but I, I you know, kind of uh, listen to Francisco there. I do have something to add to that. You know, I, while I don't think any of those tests um, kind of innately are, are, separating you based on race. I do think there is something to be said about, you know, a, a multiple choice uh, question and just how limiting that in itself is. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, and how many forms that we have to fill out. And I, I was just kind of thinking about it, you know, whenever I fill out a form and there is a place to put race, I've never felt like a box truly defines who I am. They have all of these mm -hmm. options. And then at the end, there's a mixed race, but not Latino where's mixed race with Latino? Right. Why is that not an option? So I, you know, I do think to a degree and, and having options and, and you need to pick from these four, that's limiting in itself. Mm -hmm. You know, what's funny guys, what's been told a lot, especially throughout our generation, the last, you know, three or four decades is the, you know, epidemic of ADHD. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think ADHD, you know, I mean, we've been like diagnosing boys primarily left and right and also giving them a ton of Ritalin and, and other drugs. And one of the things that we found out in the last 10 to 20 years about ADHD is it's often we see ADHD symptomatology come from, you know, individuals who have childhood trauma, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and so it's just, it was really interesting as you were sharing that because standardized testing as a whole and the way that you view yourself and have to kind of understand um, organizing thoughts into very kind of like concise language and into very black and white ways of thinking become really challenging in the context where you're already trying to overcome right? A significant level of childhood trauma. And when it comes to neglect, right? I just, I, if you guys haven't had the chance of talking about or of reading 
um, The Will to Change by Bell Hooks. I, I highly recommend it. Last time I recommended her book um, on loving, right? She wrote a book on loving first and then proceeded mm -hmm. to write about, um, you know, what it means to be African-American in a variety of ways. But finally, she just said, I really wanted to write a book about masculinity because it's so woefully represented uh, represented in the literature, right? And she does it from a feminist perspective and it is just so powerful because she also talks about how feminism in its first wave didn't necessarily do um, reformatting or reimagining masculinity in a positive way. Um, but instead she brings forward, forward this really interesting idea of how we've traumatized generations of men because we haven't necessarily allowed them to be feeling to be vulnerable, to have particular thoughts that quite frankly go against the grain of how we think of men or how, you know, the dominant society wants to think of men as silent and, and strong, right? Going mm -hmm. back to that saying. So um, that's just a caveat there. I found that so interesting that you, Dorian, you, you mentioned it, you know, the standardized testing and how it really pigeonholes people. And it causes a lot of anxiety for, for a lot of men. It's interesting you bring up ADHD as well, because after I was, so after my parents got divorced when I was seven years old, I was actually brought to counseling and they suggested that I get tested for ADHD mm. and they were planning on putting me on Ritalin um, after this trauma and, uh, and my, my mom had said no. And so she, and you know, I did cope with the trauma and go to counseling for a very long period of time. And still to this day, I most likely do in different ways. Um, but I was very happy that I was not put on Ritalin at a young age, just from something that, you know, mm -hmm. could have been diagnosed differently or taken care of differently. Um, but and there's nothing, I, re I really do want to say there's nothing wrong yeah. with medication, right? Like mm -hmm. there's a real need. A lot of people need it. And a lot of, you know, particular cases, it's a case by case basis. And uh, when I share something, it's more in the larger sense, right? Mm -hmm. And it's more in the sense of understanding because there are folks who still, you know, um, take Ritalin, even though it was a, you know, um, what's it called? Some traumatic event. But it's just like it's a case by case basis. And it becomes so difficult to separate for us yep. as a society, you know, is the main thing that I'm communicating. Um, and I think that's important for listeners to know that, you know, we're not advocating for the lack of it's more, mm -hmm. more education to what it means to be a man in that context. And, and what are some of the stereotypes that we also have to have to fend off, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I 100% agree because I would be a complete hypocrite if I said anything against medication as somebody who takes medication consistently for anti-anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, so I will, I will admit that is I not for a second was saying anything that, that Ritalin was necessarily a bad thing holistically, just that right. in terms of my needs, it was not right. And totally. yeah. it took professional help to figure that out. But, you know, it was interesting because going back a little bit to one of the points that you had earlier, and you actually posted a really interesting article by NPR today on microaggressions. Mm -hmm. And you had, you had been talking a lot about microaggressions briefly earlier. Um, and I just, I think it's really, it's fascinating to, to really check yourself on consistent societal microaggressions that you're just not aware of. Um, mm -hmm, and yeah. I think standardized testing is actually something that could probably 
be put into play in that as well. So I guess my question for you is, is that when it comes to microaggressions, like how do people who have a hard time confronting stuff like that, how, how can they have like a, a discussion or a conversation with themselves on like potential unconscious racism that they have or unconscious racism that's pretty prevalent throughout society? Mm. You know, it's really interesting. I think like if the question is around like how do people, how are people meant to deal with it, you know, mm-hmm. um, there's a couple of thoughts that I have. The, the first one being just, you know, microaggressions, especially when it comes to education, because you kind of, you know, flew through this topic and I felt like important to note. Mm-hmm. But in regards to standardized testing, you know, a lot of our um, communities of color right, struggle a lot with standardized testing. And we have known by research, it says standardized testing does not necessarily really tell us what the IQ is or intelligence of a child, right? Or of a teenager who's trying to get admittance into school. So even though it's been debunked, we're still using it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think, what does that say about the society, right? What are we saying that we, we privilege more, right? in that particular context. It's people who think a particular way or who don't go and don't have, you know, trauma when, you know, you go through different cities that have, you know, issues in the community or issues uh, in their home. And, you know, they're really struggling to figure out, you know, how do I make the next step? How do I, you know, thrive and move into spaces where I can thrive when even the educational system is against them, you know? and the schools that get funded are the ones who do well in standardized testing. So, you know, we continue to cripple communities of color. Um, So I think that in and of itself is just one of the many systemic ways, right? Where we isolate um, not just communities of color, but also the men in those communities. Just everybody, everybody, men and women. As it relates to microaggressions, I think that, you know, it's really the work of anti-racism. Like, if you want to really work on those microaggressions, you have to be really cognizant of your work as an anti-racist, right? And what are the different pieces? It's not, it's not enough to be not racist, right? But being not racist, we still, you know, espouse things that very much marginalize people. We still expect people, you know, to do certain things um, to preserve the order of the way, you know, our life is. And so... I think I I know that's a general larger way of saying it, but I think as it relates to psychology and as it relates to sociology and us as a a community, you know, how is it that we feel good about putting other people down? You know, I I find that that's one of the most prevalent things that really um, activates my own understanding as well as work with clients. It's, you know, people are just constantly bullied for who they are, how they are different, right? And that's ultimately those microaggressions, right? And there, there's always this caveat to microaggressions that they're, they're very gaslighting, right? You, you, they're, they're, they're racist, but they're not racist in, insofar as that they're, they're subtle, they might be a joke, they might be this, they might be that. But um, so it starts to, again, erode a person's sense of self in the world. You know, and so I think those pieces would be what's most prevalent for me and 
what I think about as a mental health therapist when I'm with clients is how have these particular practices and ways of looking at a human person, you know, or ways in which they have to assume other people's microaggressions really erode on their sense of self and their agency in the world, you know? So microaggressions also, I think, stop people from growing. They keep them small. And why do we do that? Men do that to women all the time, you know, um, Men also do that, you know, to people of color all the time. Um, white people do that to people of color all the time. And so, and we do that because I think it comes from a place where we've been bullied, right? We've been treated poorly and there is trauma there, right? When we engage in that particular archetype of the bully, of the persecutor. And the, that's stuff that we're not handling. We're not managing. We're not really taking to account, Right how that's impacting the larger society. Dorian, any follow-up, any questions? Um, no, I, I just would say, just to add to that, you know, I feel like most of the time I've seen that taking place. Um, it's either one or two types of people. One, someone who is not actually, you know, people who will claim I'm not racist after the fact, but it's people who've never actually done anything. Okay, you, po you posted a black box on Instagram what else have you done? It's, it's people who aren't really taking action because regardless of you intentionally said something hurtful to someone else or not, there's something in the sublime there that, that you're thinking it because you haven't challenged your way of thinking yet. I think that that is number one, uh, one of the biggest parts of it. And I think number two, to go along with what Francisco said, it is typically a lot of people who are dealing with not feeling great about themselves to begin with. And it's easy to say, Hey, I'm dealing with this, but at least I'm not that. We take it out on other people. That's totally right. true. Yeah. So, you know, I guess, I guess the thought process of that is that it seems like there's a pretty bad cycle from the start for people, for everybody who is being continuously bullied. And I mean, as you had spoken to is that, people are being bullied. And so they're, they're bullying others consistently over and over and over again. To the I point mean, there's where, just no place for a release either. Alex. Yeah. You know, like there's no way that any of these people who are bullied, any of these people who are just marginalizing other people, you know, microaggressing them because of stereotypes or because of the way that, you know, they want to see this person mm -hmm. in a particular eye or because of the way that they've been taught, you know, mm -hmm. that there's no, those people often don't have a space to actually talk about meaningful things. And I think that's the larger notion. When as a society, are we going, you know, this is a powerful conversation, right? It's a powerful mm -hmm. conversation that other men can tend to and that can listen into, but go ask any of your listeners, regular listeners that are all of a sudden, Hey, how many group of men, diverse men, right? Where you're not just surrounded by white men, but like surrounded by, you know, uh, a diversity of men and backgrounds and cultures where you can have constructive dialogue about some of these issues. I, I, I really don't know many. Um, and I think that when there are, because I have met some, mm -hmm. um, they're usually closed off, you know, they're not very open to new members. And so there's not this like new wealth of information that comes from different perspectives, right? And so that's, I think, another way that we keep ourselves safe from the outside world and from particular, you know, experiences.
Um, but to that end, if we don't have safe spaces where we can share. So if men can't share with their wives because their wives don't want to see them as vulnerable and weak, if they can't share with other men because they don't want to be seen as vulnerable and weak, you know, if they don't want to share with their family because they don't want to be seen as vulnerable and weak because they've been trained that way within those particular spaces, you know, um, then where is there a space, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll admit being a white guy, guys, it's been, <laughs> it's put me out of my comfort zone a lot having these separate conversations. No doubt. Yeah. Like this is the first time I've done stuff like this in my entire life. Like Dorian, we, we talked about this, man. Like right. I haven't done a lot of this. It, it, it was weird at first. And it, even to this day, like just earlier, trying to structure sentences in my mind, I have to really critically think about what I'm saying, um, which oftentimes leads to the, the question just not coming out properly, I feel like. But I guess this kind of comes back to Francisco, what we had spoken about before is there's so many people who are so indifferent, so in, or they, they seem apathetic or indifferent. White people, specifically today with everything going on, is it because of those reasons? Like they're just not able to comfortably have these conversations that this just this indifference exists? I mean, we also have to remember the, the way the nervous system works in these particular situations, right? Mm -hmm. When something comes into conflict that feels like it's a threat to our life, we manage it by either fight or flight, right? Mm -hmm. And we'll be in it. But we have a threshold as to how long we can be in fight or flight, right? Engaging in the problem. And there comes a moment where we pass that threshold. Then we go into our freeze response, which also means appeasing, right? Or people pleasing at that moment, because we're overwhelmed. So you pass the threshold, that's overwhelmed, right? And so people just get, you know, and I think that's a lot of what, you know, has been talked about too in social media. It's just like, this needs to be a marathon, not a sprint, because <laughs> you will burn yourself out. Um, and that's everybody across the board, right? And so it needs, especially people who are just starting this, it's almost like you, you need to engage, figure out a structure that's going to allow you to engage this every day that's not going to lead you to burnout, right? But your stamina, right, your endurance is low at this point in time, unlike other people of color or other people of, um, you know, allies who have been doing the work for a while, who have been engaging the dynamic, who have been engaging their privilege, right, who have been calling themselves out and you know, trying to shift the lifestyle and shift the way they view things, then that's different, right? We're building capacity for that. And I think that's what I would say to, to listeners. It's just like, just because you're at capacity doesn't mean you don't have the will or the ability to continue to grow in that endurance, right? And that stamina, you just got to continually show up, right? And yes, you have to take good care of understanding where your limits are. And I think that's the other issue because if you don't understand your own emotional experience, how can you be, you know, expected to know where your threshold is? Yeah. You can't. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. you know, we come against a lot of different dynamics that all perpetuate us staying the same, right? And staying within the system and complicit in the system. So, you know, the, the overwhelm is the biggest piece. And so how to come back up the ladder, that nervous system ladder into safety, right, is so pivotal, which is why it needs to be, you know, because uh, 
you have to go to your respective community, you know, where there could be a larger conversation, you know, like I think 13 years ago or however many years ago it was where I sat down with a group of men to, to read, you know, Dance of the Dissonant Daughter, which was, you know, it's a story about the divine feminine and the journey of Sue Monk Kidd, who wrote The Secret Life of Bees, into what it's like for her to really embrace the divine feminine outside of a Christian context because she witnessed her daughter, you know, be bullied. Well, it's not even bullied, but like really sexually harassed at her workplace. Mm. And that sent her into a meltdown and, and this entire journey, which she, you know, shares throughout the book. And, you know, I, I got together in a group of men where we, you know, read it together. It was a book club and we unpacked it. What was it like, you know, and many of them were married and their wives, you know, had said that that book was, uh, you know, really important for them in their own process and their own journey of unpacking, you know, um, that aspect of their femininity, you know, and that acceptance of it. And so that's what we need to do, right? We need to go mm -hmm. over in places and in spaces and in understanding by engaging and engaging in safety. It would be really different if we feel shut down because we're constantly next to people who, you know, we, we are scared of because we feel like they know more. And it's one of the reasons why people of color, you know, BIPOC folk cannot do that work for white folks. You know, mm -hmm. they have to get together in their own communities and really start to ask those questions together and hold each other accountable. And of course, they can bring in people of color. I think that's necessary. You know, we amplify, you know, those black voices, those people of color, you know, those indigenous voices. And at the same time, like we have to do our own work within our own communities. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. We have a little bit of time left. Uh, Dorian, do you have any final thoughts or questions that you'd like for to ask Francisco? Um, not questions, but but something I, I just kind of want to add to that, you know, and, and to your question is, you know, kind of feeling uncomfortable talking about that. I think another huge portion of it is understanding your privilege doesn't define you and, and not being so shamed by that, that you cannot admit it. I know that I've had a number of conversations with people where, you know, this is, we start talking about this and it's, well, you know, my dad actually started from nothing too. And it's like, it's, it's not about any of that. And you don't have to justify you, who you are and where you are at right now, based on the fact that we're having a conversation about this privilege. And it's, it's bigger than that. And it, it's structural. And, and there, I think a lot of people get uncomfortable and thinking that if I admit that there's this white privilege, I'm essentially taking away from all the hard work I've done my dad's, you know, your family members have done it. And that makes people feel um, really uncomfortable talking about it and, and kind of shy away from the fact that it exists. Absolutely. Yeah, well said. yeah. Well, you know, honestly, guys, I think that's a good way to wrap this up today. Once again, Francisco, thank you so much for coming back on the show and finishing up the conversation that we started last time. Um, we really appreciate all the time that you've given to this show. Uh, Anytime. Yeah. It's yeah. been my pleasure. Awesome. Thank you for having me guys. And yeah, greatly um, appreciated. Yeah. And hopefully we can continue that conversation around what it needs means to be, you know, a man. And, and I'm, I'm curious to, to see what, what your listeners also, also think and what some of their questions are in regards to all of this. Absolutely. We'll make sure to, you know, we'll probably end up posting something on social media where we can have people more discreetly send in some questions. For sure. For awesome. Thank you All again. Right. Take care, Francisco.
All right, everybody, we are going to be taking a quick intermission before we get to the end that we're going to be doing, which is going to be Dorian and I having a little bit of a discussion on our interview with Francisco and just maybe a little bit of follow-up, right? So, but before we get into any of that, we got our last two ads of the day. The first is going to be from, you know it, ESR Embroidery. They are the people who have put together the custom ATP clothing and apparel line. So if you're looking for custom apparel for your growing business of your own, if you're looking to make personalized logos for you, your team, or just want some custom swag for yourself, well, come to ESR Embroidery for all your personalized apparel needs. We're talking shirts, hats, hoodies, and more. Built on ingenuitive designs and detailed work, you'll be able to bring the designs you've always been looking for alive at ESR. Find them at Instagram at ESR Embroidery, so ESR underscore Embroidery, excuse me, for personalized inquiries or on Etsy for all other work. The last is going to be Down Dog Athletics. Down Dog Athletics' mission is to make yoga and mental health more accessible to athletes so they can better improve their performance. Every yoga sequence is designed to mimic movement patterns seen in the gym and on the field. Every mindset technique is put through the lens of how an athlete sees the world. We believe that every athlete needs a balance between their dark side and their light side. We are programmed to be dark side dominant, always going harder and faster. But sometimes we need to tap into our light side by slowing down and practicing stillness. When you slow down, you gain more awareness. When you gain more awareness, you smooth out inefficiencies and become faster. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Find out how you can become, how you can gain more awareness, I should say, by visiting downdogathletics.com. There, you're going to be able to find some programs that can help reach your mental and physical goals. I was going to say, I, I started reading about um, the Chaz up in Seattle mm-hmm. and, you know, about kind of what they're doing there besides obviously occupying a six box radius. Um, but it talked a lot about how they were opening up space, safe space, safe, safe spaces. spaces. <laughs> yeah. 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 Able to have those conversations and, uh, you know, they had just couches set up around a park and yep. like, where else are we going to have that? Cause right now there's not a place where would you go talk about that? You're not going to go to a live area. You're not going to go to a bar. Like where, yeah. where can these conversations happening? Because once they start happening, people are going to stop feeling so uncomfortable yeah, because yeah, that's yeah. what it is right now. It's an uncomfortable thing because you've never done it. For sure. And no, you're, you're right. It's like what we're just talking about is the fact that there's like, a lot, there's not a lot of spaces for us to talk about this, right? There's not a lot of places where we can like sit down and be like, yo, this is, this is how I feel. Or just like, let's just put all of it out there. Um, because like through different aspects of society, we're typically taught to just be like, Hey, no, 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 this isn't the time right? At work, this isn't the time. When you're at dinner with family, this isn't the time. When you're doing this, this isn't the time. When is the fucking time? Like, right. When's the time? We, we have to figure out a space and a way to make the time. Because yeah. I can tell you that, you know, the conversation essentially that we just had, I've, I've taken a lot of classes at U of O that, that pertain to this. And we'd have the conversations and, you know, the white people in the class, half of them felt the same way. And you could tell just Hey, we're going to get into open classroom discussion. I need everybody's participation. I can look around the room, just see red faces of, oh, fuck. I -hmm. actually have to talk about this publicly. I have to share my personal opinion on this 
yeah. and a forum where all these people are going to judge me. Yeah. And, you know, they all know that I'm white, so I must have a privilege over them. And yep. anything I say at this point is probably just going to be used against me. And it's, there's a lot of uncomfortableness around it. And it just, it immediately yeah. shows. And <clears throat> I think the difference that you see and, you know, um, people of color, minorities, you know, however you want to call it, is that these aren't new conversations because we're, we're constantly having to have them and live with them. So yeah, you know, it's, yeah. there's a privilege there and even not having to, you know, be educated and be like, Oh fuck, this is the first time I've had to talk about mm-hmm. this. Yeah. And Francisco brought up the fact that it's, it's not the responsibility of people of color to educate white people because they have to emotionally handle so many different things themselves. Right. Um, and as a, as a white guy, like that embarrassment, I can, to a certain extent, empathize. Right. And what I mean by that is like, it's really tough because A, you have to acknowledge your own privilege. B, you have to kind of be like, in a sense, you're, you're like, I can imagine a lot of them were very worried that they were, they were stepping on eggshells, right? They were worried that they were going to say the wrong thing. They were worried that they were going to do the wrong thing, that they were going to say something bad. That's going to, that's going to make them feel bad and have other people attack them. Um, And so I think, that there's a misconception, right? That these, a lot of white people think that by having this conversation, you open up yourself to be attacked when it's, it's the opposite. Right. And and I, I mean, I think that's the key aspect of it being a safe, safe space. Yes. Being able to say those things and somebody be able to say, Hey, you know, when, when you said that, that part is, you know, a little bit, you got to look at it from this perspective or how you're saying that, you know, has a different meaning to this person mm-hmm. and being able to say, my bad, you know, I didn't know. I didn't even think about it like that way. Cause that's, I mean, that's at yeah. the end of the day, what it is. I didn't even think how that would make someone think that I feel this way, but yeah. you can't go and correct that until you talk, you know, if we're not talking about it, you can't correct even, yeah. even those small things and know, Hey, maybe this makes people uncomfortable when I say this. And I, I mean, and not even that you should be only saying things that make people comfortable, but just understanding the other perspective yeah, and, and knowing where everybody's coming from and everybody's view. Like personally, I would, regardless if someone, you know, I would talk to a redneck about this stuff. If they're willing to have the conversation, I mm-hmm. respect you just for having a conversation, regardless of your views, mm-hmm. as long as we can have a civil conversation where it doesn't turn into fuck you, fuck you, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. I think it's completely fine to say, hey, you know, I grew up and this is what I saw and this is what I did. This is my stance on it. Well, you know, this is what I saw. This is what I did. Let's compare our two realities. Yeah. And man, I just, I just want to note this really quickly for everybody who is not in Seattle. This is what's going down in Chaz. This is what is going down in this autonomous zone. I, I've seen a lot of stuff and this, this is really really frustrates me. So that's why I'm noting this is I've seen a lot of stuff attacking it as a chaos filled anarchy zone. I cannot tell you how much I hate, hate that description because you know, what's actually happening is these types of conversations. These they're opening up couches. There's opening up spots. They're giving out food. They're, they're doing all these things that is just humanity being humanity and if you're against that i'm against you like i don't care if that is a little bit too harsh of a stance but if you are against people being humans to each other i don't know if we're gonna ever be able to see eye to eye and it agitates the hell out of me 
that anybody would try and depict something so pure and so good for society as anything different. And, and going a little bit off of that tirade, it's hard to get off of harmony, right? And noting back on what you were just talking about, harmony, it's really easy to live a very harmonious life when that is what you're used to. And it's really tough to break that cycle. Um, I think for a lot of white people, that's what we're seeing a lot nowadays is they're, they're, it's, it's really hard to break out of that harmonious cycle. Um, but like once you put your, and I, you actually had this quote in a, in one of our other episodes, matter of fact, when you did that intro where you said like, you don't have to dive head first into the deep end, like 12 feet in, but you can't do the shallow end anymore. That's you can't do that anymore. That quote stuck with me, man. Like it really stuck with me. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think what you're saying is completely, I mean, it all, it all starts with the conversation. That's the foundation. Yeah. It Absolutely. all starts there. And so really quickly, because this came to my note and to my mind, I guess, um, to my note, <laughs> it came to my mind is that one video of, and you know, you might know what I'm talking about, Dorian, the redneck and the, uh, the black guy who are essentially, they're having like a conversation in the form of a song, right? I have no clue. That he, okay. That so I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to find this out, man. It's, um, all right. Well, we might have to leave this to another time because it's going it, to take me a little bit. Not racist? Um, I think it might be. Yeah. Yes, it is. I Googled it is. redneck and black guy. And the first thing that came up was a song called I'm not racist. Yep. It's that one. So Joyner Lucas, I'm not racist. It's a fan. I honestly, I love that video. I don't know if you've seen it yet, Dorian, you should really check it out. Yeah. I've never heard of this song. I'll, I'll have to give yeah. it a listen today. It's a, it's a really, really good one. I might just listen to it again right now, just because I liked it that much. Um, I saw this and the sad part is this came out two years ago more than likely after this came out three years ago this came out november 28 2017 i apologize the youtube video that i'm looking at uh was was uploaded two years ago but the point being is that this is something that we've been dealing with for so like such a long period of time that this video is still just as relevant right now um it's i don't know man it's so much to say It's, it's just so much to say there's a lot. I mean, and, and one thing I'll add to that is kind of going off of where, where Francisco opened up for us. You know, he, he spoke about having to explain to people that they've dealt with trauma. Um, and I think yeah. the biggest thing with that is so many of these issues are just normalized. And for a lot of people, you don't, you don't feel that way because this is normal for you. This is what, you know, you've gone through. This is what other members of your family gone through. This is what other people who look like you've gone through. Mm-hmm. it's the norm and that and i think that's the problem and i think that's why what's happening so right now is so great for the country because it is creating that conversation and it is starting that dialogue and i mean so far it's not just been uh you know george floyd was a weak news story mm-hmm. you know it's it's kind of persistent and i think that's the thing that we needed to see because there's a hundred george floyds that that happens at least once a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those stories, you know, I, I could go on a list of all of the times that that's happened over the last, until this song came out, I'm sure, yeah. um, on a monthly basis. But it's that none of those things have propelled this to the conversation being where it is now, where we're still willing to engage, right? And I mm-hmm. think that that is um, probably the, 
the most positive thing that's come out of this whole whole entire thing. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. And <laughs> dude, it's crazy. It's uh it's nuts because it's exhausting and I can't even begin to imagine what it would be like to live my entire life like this. I'll say that. So, all right, guys, well, we're going to call it a quit or call it, call it a quit. We're going to call it quits on today's show. Um, clearly there's just been a lot of stuff that we have had on our minds and uh, Dorian and I will both say that there's been a lot of stuff going on these past few weeks, but we are probably going to continue to put out content like this because we feel that it is that important. Uh, We hope you guys enjoyed this episode as always. And Dorian, go ahead. Just want to say one other thing. Um, Shout out to everybody who donated to us. You know, we, we started GoFundMe this week with her goal. I think like, what was it within 24 hours? It was less than that, dude. It was like 18. That that's amazing. Yeah. So Dorian is completely right. I, I can't believe I even forgot to mention something. Um, thank you so much to our listeners. We're not only are we well above our goal, we hit our goal in, in less than a day. We're currently like trending towards hitting double what our goal was already. And it's, it hasn't even been a week. So thank you so much guys. Um, it's, it's great to hear and hear it's great to see that people care about these issues. Uh, well, I guess as much as we do. Keep going. Keep going. All right, everybody. We're signing off. Take care.